Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm really looking forward to listening to today's podcast myself. It's an interview that Lex Pelger did with my old friend Bill Radizinski, or Wild Bill as I like to call him. In previous podcasts, I've told the story of my first meeting with Bill in Palenque, Mexico, and, well, of various other adventures that we've had over the years. However, I've never told any of the stories about us that also included our dear friend, Tom Seeger, Dr. Tom. And uh, I'm sorry to say that, uh, well, today's not the day to tell any of those stories either. Instead, I am very sad to have to tell you, if you haven't already heard, but this past Monday, our beloved Dr. Tom died. Perhaps uh, one day there will come a time when many of the stories about Dr. Tom may be told, but that time is not now. What I can say, however, is that Dr. Tom's contribution to the worldwide psychedelic community was tremendous. Tom enjoyed staying in the background, uh, but he never made it seem as if that was his intention. When I recently went through some photos of uh, some of the adventures that Wild Bill and Tom and I shared, I discovered that Tom was only in two of them. Somehow, without us noticing it, he seemed to avoid the camera. So, for now, I think it's best that we keep his exploits and contributions out of the light for, well, for a little while longer. Hopefully, sometime after all of us graduates of the Palenque and Theobotany conferences are all dead and gone, well, maybe then there will be some young enthusiasts who uncover and publish the exploits of that unusual gang of misfits who played critical but unsung roles in many of the battles of this so-called war on drugs. And if those stories are told, you will find our dear friend Dr. Tom Seeger right at the top of the list of heroes who went above and beyond the call of duty to make this world a better place. Well, I'm sorry to have launched us into kind of a downer here, but particularly since this is to be Wild Bill's day here in the salon. But since Bill was even closer to Dr. Tom than I was, I'm, well, I'm sure that he won't mind. Now, getting on with the program... Since I haven't listened to this conversation yet myself, I don't want to tell any stories here that, uh, well, that maybe Bill has repeated in this interview. However, he may not mention his days as the unofficial in-house photographer at Allison and Alex Gray's Cosm while it was still located in Manhattan. And I should point out that way back in my podcast during the peak of the Occupy Wall Street movement, I interviewed Bill about what it was like to be on the ground during some of the big marches. And uh, if you saw the Associated Press obituary for Nick Sand that came out not too long ago, well, that great photo of Nick Anusha was also one of Bill's. So uh, now let me get out of the way and uh, turn it over to Lex Pelger, who I can uh, actually picture sitting in Bill's apartment in New York City where I have also had some great experiences that uh, still live as very fond memories. You know, with with Ibogaine, I saw this is something that kind of grabs you by the balls and gets your attention and says, hey, Joe, this is your life, Jack. This is what you want to do. Well, 
welcome to the first broadcast of the Psychedelic History Project Thursdays, which is our working title for these segments. They will be stripped down, bare bones, no music, just letting people talk. And so there's no one better I can think to start with than old Wild Bill, a friend of Lorenzo's who has seen many different worlds around the psychedelic community. And now I'll leave him to tell you more. Hi, I, I represent what Lorenzo jokingly refers to me as the representative of blue-collar psychedelia. Because <laughs> <laughs> of that, you know, it's that New York yeah, attitude. Just seen the first time I was in uh, in San Francisco, I came uh, into uh, uh, the first conference I ever attended out there. And I came in with my, you know, just, I guess, brimming with New York attitude. And you could see people edging away. <laughs> they later got to know me better. But how I got into this, you know, I'm back in the, uh, back in, uh, it had to be, yeah, it was spring of 69 in San Antonio, Texas. And my fraternity brothers said, hey, I got some, I got some, um, uh, whatchamacallit, some synthetic mescaline, which is outrageous because it, it, it wasn't because synthetic mescaline is just too expensive to produce. So uh, he had come. All I had ever done was pot. I'd, first thing I tried though was DMT, but I didn't take it all in one shot. So I got about halfway to the door one night, and laying in bed, you know, sharing a room with my brother who's asleep in the other bed, and I didn't get off. And a couple of months after that, I wound up getting turned on to to cannabis and. I was having fun with it, and then uh, I went to school in Texas for two years, in the last two years, and in 69, fraternity brother said, yeah, I'll bring it over, we'll, we'll get, we'll turn on, you know, get about six, seven people, we'll get high. Uh, handed me the pill, and I figured I'd be full of apprehension and hesitating, but I just took that sucker, popped it right in my mouth, and uh, an hour later, I was just having a great, it's probably about 100 mics 125 mics i figure about uh they wanted to hang out and uh watch the walls breathe and i'm saying it's a beautiful day outside come on i went outside got my bathing suit went to the swimming pool swam walked around the campus and the the gardens and stuff it was beautiful and um then i uh, um didn't do much of anything for a while graduated got drafted wound up being uh Serving, I was supposed to go to Vietnam. I had the orders changed, and I wound up in Berlin. And for a year and a half, I uh, I worked as the uh, um, the the editor, command editor for the United States Army Berlin and uh, Berlin Brigade. Had a nice, interesting job, office job, non-infantry. It was great, and we started getting a lot of. Uh, I started going. To, got with a good group of people and started hanging out and that's when the really good acid was coming in uh sunshine was coming in from the states uh czechoslovakians were making acid uh students at the free university were making acid and uh, i started um, started dropping and uh bigger doses much bigger doses and it was kind of like, uh, like I described once before, it was like, uh, you know, I knew I was never going to be able to afford to go take a trip to Kathmandu or anything like do a, do a tour of Europe. So at least LSD gave me a chance to just 
do out of space. So we would do these, you know, tremendous heroic doses. And so most of my, my LSD use, heavy LSD use, was in a year and a half period in, in Berlin. It was a very comfortable place to trip. It was, uh, there was a nice vibe. And uh, when I came back to the States, I just kind of lost, just, I, I lost connection to the, to the, to the, the culture. And um, I was back to smoking pot and drinking beer just like everybody else. And this went on for probably about 10 years until in early to mid-90s. I was in San Antonio, Texas again with my wife. She was attending a, a board meeting or something. And I was just there for a week just to hang out, photograph, and visit old friends and stuff. And I walked into um, a convenience store, downtown San Antonio, and on the magazine rack, there was this magazine, and it had a, a big pink mushroom on the cover, glowing. And it was called Psychedelic Illuminations. And uh, I may have it. It's it's buried back here somewhere in my collection of stuff in my my library. I got a library, psychedelic library over there. I'll show it to you later. Uh, and I picked it up, bought it, opened it up, and I'm reading about this guy Terrence McKenna. I'm going, holy shit! People are still doing this stuff. You know, I was living on the East Coast, and so, you know, you don't know what's going on. This has been been going on the West Coast for some time. So I started reading it. And then uh, I, I got a mailing from the Open Center, and I was looking through this stuff, and there was this guy, Terrence McKenna, was showing I was going to have a workshop. So I signed up for a weekend workshop. I did two days with him, and he told us about a conference coming up in San Francisco and uh, that we ought to go to it. You know, it's a three-day conference. And uh, I did. Um, that was in mid nineties, and I saw Carrie Mullis did a presentation, you know, with a rock band. Uh, you had uh, Jonathan Ott. You had all the, these people. Richard Schultes was supposed to show up, but uh, didn't quite make it. Had all these presenters and stuff, and I met these these really great, really cool people, and. Um, on the seat where I was sitting, there was a, a little pamphlet and a brochure about an ethnobotanical conference being held in Palenque, Mexico. And uh, I looked at it and said, this is interesting. So I got back home in New York, spoke to the, my wife, who isn't into any of this stuff at all. Um, and I said, yeah, this sounds interesting. And she said, well, man, you got the money, why don't you go? And so I did. I, I took the trip down to Palenque. Um, and it was incredible. A week in that place, meaning that these these things were legendary. They they held two conferences, one each each week. It was uh, I even knew one person went to both sessions. Uh, he was a trust fund kid; had nothing better to do with his life. But I, I met an interesting bunch of people. Um, and I said to Terrence, "It's like I went to a family reunion, a meeting." All these cousins that I had heard about, but, you know, I never knew. And uh, um, he said, well, welcome to our family. You know, that, that elfin voice is. He says, this is our gang. And uh, 
that's eventually I, I went the following year they went to Ushmal instead and then the year after that they went back to Palenque which is where I ran into Lorenzo and wound up introducing Lorenzo to his wife uh, somehow Mary C yeah Mary C oh that's yeah we all met down there for the, that was in 99 uh, that was the last year I went because later that year I got myself a heart attack and I kind of put a, a a, a thing on things um, but I was hooked and I had all these associations with all these people on the west coast and uh, to, to this day and like I said I, I flew out for that uh, for the last conference because uh, basically not only attend the conference but see all these people I hadn't seen in a few years and uh, Really tight, and it's a it's a good crew, and it's a completely different state of mind on the West Coast. You couldn't do, you could not do what they did here in New York. You just wouldn't be able to do it. Just not the place for it. But that's how I got back into this stuff, and of course, and it also that's about the time when I started to have a lot of problems with cognitive dissonance with my job as as a parole officer and and, and senior parole officer working in within that that uh, deep bureaucratic state. And uh, things just started going south, you know. Well, what was it like to be doing doing these uh, substances and then going back, back to that kind of work? Well, but, you know, I wasn't, I really wasn't doing anything all that, uh, well, shrooms and stuff like that. Well, you, you put, you have work here and then you put all this other stuff over there you carry some of the, you I, I carry some of the attitudes uh the i had what you call I, I call the curse of acid once you've done really deep trips you get to hundreds of micrograms and you see how the whole thing works together and and and, and uh, the idea of cooperation between things and how the flow works and and um you see the big picture. You you cannot look at. I, I just can't look at things like uh, compartmentalized like a lot of the bureaucrats I work with could. We just look at one particular thing. You know, you got to look at the big picture. Uh, and you s- suddenly you look at the big picture and it's all dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> the curse of acid. It creates, it creates it creates problems. You know, it does create problems and. Uh, it was working deep on a, on a subconscious level with me, and I was becoming more and more dissatisfied uh, with uh, just with attitudes. And and, uh, and I tried dispelling fear, uh, dealing with uh, the people I supervised, my parole officers, you know, treating them like human beings and stuff, and uh, uh, getting away from that if you don't do this you're going to get punished type deal uh, get them to work in a more cooperative mode a lot of them had never been spoken to that way and uh, I also dealt with parolees that way a lot too and um, it's all informed by my, my use of psychedelics opening me up to you know you got to open up a little bit here you got to give a little bit and um I had a, a, a had one of my partners came up and said, "You know, 
they have this this image of you as being this real tough guy who kicks indoors, and I never kicked a door in in my life. Uh, but you're not like that at all. Says you don't lock people up a lot, do you? You you know you program them and stuff. I'm saying yeah, because going to jail is a waste of time, quite frankly. And uh, so I I just. Uh, we had a you know a, a falling out, and so I went from in my final years in a division, I went from having a uh, distinguished career to an extinguished one. And in about an eighteen month period, they twice tried to fire me, and uh, it was just it was just uh, I've been there too long, and it wasn't working. And eventually, I was able to retire, and I crawled from the wreckage and stuff. Um, and it's okay, you know. I I, I guess I'm uh, I'm still here. Uh, I guess I'm still here, but it's it's been uh, it's been tough coming back. I mean, kind of tough coming back from that, but uh, having uh, I'm. Having a sense of you know some community and some of the people in the psychedelic community, you know, help you get through that. Uh, boy, I'm going down an alley down here that I don't even want to go down anymore. Yeah, we don't have to. It's uh that that does sound like a tough turn though. I mean that this would inform it to the end of uh, of a career where you were making a difference from within. You know, you yeah, which is you know really yeah, important. I, my, yeah, my I found that the biggest. Uh, my biggest problem is when I went back into a supervisory position because as I was uh, working on an individual basis, one-on-one with people, I actually did a lot more good. I did a lot more good because I wasn't involved in programs and directing things and all that. Working on a one-to-one with, 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 uh, with people uh, accomplished a lot more that way. You know? And... Uh, and that way, I could stay out of the view of the uh, the people up top who just want things done a certain way. And you know, um, they used to think it was a little kind of strange because I would come up with. I remember one time I went to them and I, I said, uh, I went to the uh, uh, personnel people and I said, you know, there's an there's an interesting. I had attended the international Ibogaine conference at NYU. And I said, you know, in, in treating drug addiction, there are some very interesting new processes coming up um, that prove pretty efficacious in treating heroin addiction and possibly cocaine addiction. And uh, and then even, uh, I, I says, even if, you know, you had employees who were having problems. And then, you know, it, they looked at me like, and then I realized, oh, no, if they had employees on cocaine, they just fire them. You suggested Ibogaine to your bosses for drug treatment people? Yeah, I'm saying That's they great. Should, should take a look at it. Yeah, I they should. Of it really works because I've seen the treadmill of people, you know, of, of coming through of, of, of programs after programs and nothing is changing. And, uh, you know, with, with Ibogaine, I saw this is something that kind of grabs you by the balls and gets your attention and says, hey, Joe, this is your life, Jack. This is what you want to do. Uh but, well, that, that's too far out for those people. Like I said, look at the medical marijuana program here in New York. I mean, uh, I think they finally have added chronic pain onto the, yeah. the schedule. And it's only edibles 
and, uh, and, and oils, nothing that you can vaporize or someone can smoke. And it's really strict. And that's, that's all Cuomo, you know. And, and that's that provincial New York attitude. And it's strong among liberals. Especially if they get really self-righteous when it comes to, to, to drugs. Yeah. And stuff. It, yeah, it's rather annoying. They want to disown their own former abuse. Well, yeah, I did that when I was 19, but pots for kids. So. Um, so you you were saying that for these kind of medicines works, you just don't want to be around New York. You now go other places. Yeah, it ex- just it just doesn't seem. I mean, I've I've sat up in this apartment and I've done mushrooms. You know, uh, this is a good place for me to trip because it's comfortable. It's home. You know, I feel a, a pretty uh, safe here. Um, but I just don't. And I, I've done substances. Uh, out at, at, at parties and, you know, all-night painting parties and raves and stuff like that. I've, I've done, you know, I've done some MDMA and stuff. I hung out with people and had a good time. But um, it, it's just, there's something about the vibe here that, that, that just doesn't loan itself to uh, doing the, Heavy psychedelics. Now, like LSD, since since the seventies, when I did that year and a half, when I did all those mega dose trips, um, getting back to the thing that saved my ass is in the United States Army Library, I found two books: the Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley and uh, the Joyous Cosmology by Alan Watts. <laughs> okay, this is an Army Library, and that's what redirected my my. Uh, I stopped. Realize that there's more than just thrills and spills. This is not just a wild roller coaster ride. This is something much deeper. And then, then I started doing heavier trips and, and going deeper into the person, and uh, began to get an amazing amount of benefit from from the acid. Uh, but coming coming back here to New York, I just don't have that. Yeah. Just not that that same. There's not that same vibe here that that says I want to do more. So I do. Uh, I used to mock people who did uh, what I call museum level doses. Oh, 50 mics. Come on, you're a wuss, <laughs> man. Come on. You know, it's 250 or nothing. Um, and was I ever wrong? I was mm. absolutely wrong uh, because I found I began to find benefit in. Um, what I call shine. Hmm. Take about 50 mics, you know, just 50 mics or 60 mics, you know, up in that range. It just adds a little shine to everything. You know, it doesn't really fuck with your perceptions that much, change. It just adds a little shine, a little a little bit more there, there. Yeah. And, uh, and then that lets me, uh, lets my imagination fill in. And my own, my own head, come into it, and then I'll go to a museum, and I'll really groove on on the art, or the architecture, or I'll go into a wooded area, um, if I can, if I'm upstate or on, or out on the island, I'll go into a wooded area and just get into you know, nature at 50 miles. It's pretty nice because it just tweaks your perceptions a bit, heightens it a bit, and it's. Uh, Nice experience. And now I'm going to start uh, experimenting with microdosing. Nice. And uh, 
that I find very interesting, especially from what I, I heard on the results of all their, their, uh, their research into that. Um, that sounds like an interesting way to go. And let's tell us these all about, you know, I, I have no desire to do 250 mics again. No desire to do 500 mics again. No desire to do 750 micrograms again. You know, stuff like that. I, I've done that by, you know, by semi-accident. by semi accident. Uh, Those are good stories, too. I am, yeah, I'm really curious about these Berlin times because it's such a unique perspective. I mean, not only being within the Army, but seeing all this acid and all these plate pieces and people. And Oh, it was, you know, I was going, I was going to, at school and I get my master's degree at the same time. <laughs> In what? Doing all this. Uh, education, guidance, okay. and counseling. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I did that. My sergeant encouraged me to go. Okay. He said, come on, Red. you got got some time on your hands here. Do it. You know? And so I did it. Uh, actually, my experience in the United States Army was quite positive once I was overseas and there. Uh, I really liked the work I was doing. I liked the people I was working with, and I liked the way they respected your opinion. Uh and there was really this thing of cooperation. Berlin was like Disneyland. If you fucked up, you were gone. You were sent to an infantry unit down in the zone we call it West Germany, where you spent nine months of the year in the in the the mud and the ice and the snow and the crap and the junk. Uh, so I had a, a, it was nice, and there were a lot of highly intelligent people. And I was a headquarters company, so I had all the a lot of heads. <laughs> There was a there was a, a lot of it going around, uh, but people had a, a sense of responsibility. You didn't do it when you had work to do. You didn't do it when you had duty. This was weekends only. Uh, well, I did make an exception, and they had to say, "Willie Red, you can't do the stuff like candy," you know, and uh, and so I, I didn't. But uh, there was a sense that we had, you know, we had a job to do, and we were so lucky we were not in Vietnam getting shot at. And then you compartmentalize, and then what you did in your own time was your your own shtick. Um, and it was and it was good. I never had a bad trip. There was good acid there, and like I said, the orange sunshine was coming in. But I'll tell you, here's a here's a good cautionary tale about about dosing and and um, coming on. Uh, one afternoon, my, my tripping buddy, Mike and I, and this guy, Roger decided we felt like it was a beautiful day. Let's go do some acid. We went downtown. Um, nobody around. We usually had a dealer. His name was God. He wasn't there. Uh, the guy said, look, I've, I've got, uh, four tabs of, I think it was four tabs of purple haze and three tabs of blue cheer. And that's all I got. So we snatched them up. So we go back to our, our apartment, and we're hanging out, and uh, we decide to do the uh, Purple Haze. So we each do a tab, and we have one tab left over we're going to save for a friend of ours. So we're sitting there, you know, and we're, we're waiting. We're all in our tripping chairs, and I sofa stuffed chairs in our apartment, and waiting for the stuff to come on. And Roger, who we didn't know all that well, um, starts getting very fidgety. You know, and uh, he starts breaking out a little bit of a sweat, and he's getting really intense. He's making noises, and he and um, we're still waiting for stuff to happen. Nothing's happening. 
uh, a half hour into it, suddenly he's he's saying, this is really strong. It's coming on. I'm going, we don't feel anything. And he says, you what? And he says, no. I says, we, Mike and I look at him, we don't feel a thing. He gets really disturbed about this. It gets more intense. And he's obviously experiencing something. We're feeling absolutely nothing. Okay? We're into it for, for an, uh, about an hour, and then finally he just freaks out. He says, you guys are fucking with me. You guys are fucking with me. He gets up, and he leaves. He never spoke to us again. <laughs> we're sitting around, and we're waiting. We waited. We waited another half hour. Nothing's happening. So we went, let's break out the other stuff. So we each took a tab of that. And we're sitting there. And in about half an hour, sudden, we are like blasting off like gangbusters. I mean, unbelievable. We are ramping up faster than anything we had ever experienced before. So we're sitting there. And we're, we're just, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. It was great. We're having a great time. And finally, when we reach this kind of lucid moment, God said, my says, that's really powerful stuff. I said, you don't suppose that the maybe the other stuff really worked? He says, you know, maybe maybe it was. It was just a late reaction. He says, I don't know. I says, there's only one way to find out. Let's split the last tab and see what happens. You know, I was always up for that. And so we take the other tab, and then probably, I, now I'm saying this, what seemed like 15 minutes, who knows, at that point. Because we started, like I said, that was one of those short, lucid moments when you're in the, the trough between peaks. And suddenly, we are just like, wow. room goes out, expands out like about three miles to the left and to the right. And zaps back. And we realized that what we had done is we just done, we just, Roger was uber-sensitive to LSD, he started coming on within 20 minutes to a half-hour ingestion. We, an hour and a half later, were still not feeling anything. Had we waited maybe another half hour, it obviously would have would have developed. But we jumped, and I'm saying, you know, it was... Luckily, we didn't, you know, we were nice and safe. We had food, water, and provisions and stuff. And uh, we stayed in weather. It had a wonderful trip. But uh, lost a friend, you know, a potential friend. Was kind of sad, yeah. so yeah, that was that was uh, that was Berlin. Lots of hash, lots of great hash, real hash. Yeah, and um, and acid, and after you know after the acid coming down from the acid, then the bowls would come out, and you just fill a bowl of big chunks of hash and just pass the bowl around, and just hum and you know. Like I said, every trip I took in Berlin was just a magnificent experience. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. And a beautiful time. I've done acid out in the Grunewald. They have woods, that forest out there where they wild boar and deer. I walked into a herd of deer one morning, strolling, you know, in, in, in the early dawn, about five in the morning. Sun is up. It's summertime. Sun comes up early. And I'm strolling through a, through a glade. And uh, suddenly I look, and there's a there's a deer in front of me. I stopped, and I looked. And then I look at the corner of my eye, and I see there's one over here, there's one over here. And I slowly turn around, and there's one back here. Tripping on, like, probably 125 mics, I had just 
quietly walked into the middle of this herd of deer and they weren't disturbed in the least. And they just stood there and looked and they were just quietly chewing away. And then I took a step towards one and they kind of hopped, loped over about 50, 60 feet. So I walked up to them again. And I was just from me to you to the last deer when suddenly they wiggled their ears and they hopped a little further. So I followed them and I said, wait a minute. You're going to get lost in the woods, Jack. You're going to follow these guys all day. So I turned around and went back to where we were camped out. And uh, so, yeah, my LSD, I tie heavy LSD to my time in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And I really have no desire to to do, uh, you know, several hundred mic trip again. Yeah. You know, Alan Watts' old thing, you, you, got the, you got the phone call hanging up. You know, after the call's over, hang up the phone. Um I think that maybe had I kept it up during my employment, term of employment, you know, or at least light light doses, uh, I probably might have been a little more um, aware that I was involved in a bullshit game. Just keep your head down. Don't get involved. Don't stand up and tell them that they're full of shit. And I would have just quietly gone out to do it without any problems. But uh, I didn't. Mm. Yeah. So I have fond memories of psychedelics. That's great. So, yeah, you got to see some great communities. Because then from Berlin to Palenque, um, was was Palenque more about the, for you, more about the talking sometimes? Or were there a good bit of experiments going on with Oh, there was people doing all sorts of stuff. Of course, we got down there and, and I... Uh, I finally realized that there's no problem bringing anything into Mexico. It's just uh, coming back into the States, you could have problems. Uh, so I got a little buzz. I got turned on to uh, some marinol by a guy. It was interesting meeting the people. Uh, I met a lot of people who loved what they were doing for a living. And they were very fulfilled with things. And uh, it was the camaraderie. Uh, the feeling that I belonged to this big family that was spread out all over the world, but it, it was a tight family. It was, it was, it was great. And the uh, classes were informative. And I want to know more about plants and the relation of people to plants and the indigenous people and the old ruins and Mayan mythology and all this stuff. The, the, the whole, the whole thing. And there was, I didn't. The first year I didn't do that much of anything there. Um, the second year, down in Ushmal. Uh, the odd thing was someone said it was the, a lot of people, again, hadn't brought stuff they didn't know that you could bring. So I brought down a jar of holy shit, which was my almond butter mixed with cannabis. I brought down shrooms. I brought down all sorts of stuff. And when people want to go and party night, someone says, this is really weird that the one guy has all the stuff is the guy who's a law enforcement officer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to me, it was give stuff away. You give stuff away. So you you got to be the the law enforcement guy, (laughs) Sharon at Palenque. Yeah, well, I I used to tell I'm not really. It's yeah, it was law enforcement, but it was uh, I was kind of like an armed social worker. Mm. So I was big into the thing and programming people, putting them and resolving things. But if they screw up, then you know I take out the handcuffs and the gun. That's all there is to it. Yeah, and I never had a problem with carrying a gun or anything like that. To me, it was just a tool. Uh, It may save my life, 
Um, and you didn't really use it to intimidate people to do anything because that doesn't work. Like I said, most of the time I, I just talk to people. Give me a chance to talk to people for a while. I get them to do things like surrendering and coming in. Mm. Yeah. That's good. That's a great lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I just want to ask about the last iteration then about, because you mentioned ayahuasca's importance and how yeah. you came to the vine. Oh, uh, okay. I had read about ayahuasca in a book by um, Peter Matheson uh, at Playing the Fields of the Lord. I read about ayahuasca. This is fascinating. And then um, when I went to Palenque, uh, the man who eventually became, I guess, we'll call him my padron, did a, a, a presentation on uh, mestizo ayahuasca. Not the ayahuasca of the, the deep jungle, which is usually a one-on-one thing between some native who's is beset by ills and stuff. This is the mestizos, who's kind of urban, suburban type in-betweens. And did a great presentation. And we talked about, about ayahuasca. We talked about, about different things. And this went on for, for years and years. And uh, finally, uh, I was already, I said, you know, maybe it's time to try it. I really want to try it. And I was talking with a guy who was going to go help, go down to the jungle with him and help. Uh, he says, what I do is I go down and spend a, a week or two down there making the stuff with this shaman. making it. He says, and we drink it all day. And we do it. And he says, and I, so I was thinking about that. And I happened to call Lorenzo. And I was mentioning Lorenzo. I was thinking, he says, well, you know, so-and-so. I won't use his name. You know, he leads a group to Peru every year. The medicine group. You should give him a call, you know. And so I called him up, and I said, "Hey, you know, how's it going?" I'm blah 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 blah, and he says, "You know, well, we usually take people into our Los Angeles meeting first, and everything works out. Then we'll we'll take them to the to the jungle." He said, "But we've been talking about this for ten years." <laughs> And I've been trying to convince you to do it, so we'll go ahead and waive that, and we'll take you want pay the money, and we'll take you right down to Peru. And I went down there, and I, I told you it was a very sparse experience. Uh, it um, altogether, I've done fifteen, probably fifteen sessions. Um, it is, as I've said before to people. It's the only entheogen I know that gives homework. It really does. It does. And like I said, I'm still working on my homework assignment from two years ago. I haven't drunk the vine in two years. I found, though, that doing ayahuasca, I have a lot of respect for. Matter of fact, I get the willies. And it tastes, oh, it's the most awful tasting shit on the planet. Which is one way, you know, people never abuse the stuff. You know, <laughs> um, I approach it with, with fear, anxiety, trepidation. And I usually have a rough session because I do a lot of purging. Because I'm, I'm uh, also, I absorb everything around me, all the vibes around me. 
So I have a lot of shit from working in the, the prison system for six years and then 21 years in the street and parole. I have a lot of dark shit to work out. And it, gets, it gets worked out. It gets worked out. I find I don't remember a lot of the stuff I experienced. A com- complete blank. But after a session, I feel whole, clean, and I feel kind of impelled very gently to do certain things or not to do certain things. Um, when I started doing ayahuasca, I found that uh, I was doing less of uh, other things like 2CB or MDMA, um, stuff like that. I, I just was doing less of and stuff, and I was paying more attention to how I was conducting myself with people. And this is, uh, and I'm not the only person who who gets that feeling that they've been, they're kind of getting tutored and living a different way. You know, and I get that very strongly with the ayahuasca. Although I, I uh, like I said, I haven't done it in about two years. I may never drink it again. You know, although I just got noticed that my group is going to the Amazon again. And I keep saying, you know, I would I would like to go down there and spend all that time. Even if I did it through ayahuasca, just sitting in that tomba in absolute isolation in the middle of the rainforest is just such a, um, uh, a mind-blowing experience. It's just so different from here, from this. Com- complete opposite of this. You know, I could see living and wearing nothing but a loincloth, you know, for, for a week and a half out there. And it'd be perfectly fine. You know, it's just the way it is. You get very primitive. And you get stripped down to your bare bones. And uh, and then you do five sessions of ayahuasca on top of that. Let me tell you, man, your body is ready for it. It's an open channel. And I've seen amazing. I'm sitting on, on, the, on the shitter. Um... They had two outside the, the Maloka, which is the round building where we hold the ceremonies. And I run out to, to get my shoes on and run out to, to go with my bucket because sometimes you're going to shit and puke at the same time, just in case. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I need the bucket because I don't want to vomit because other people are going to have to sit on this throne too. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thanking the mother for my miserable condition. And I'm, at the same time, I'm laughing at, you know, I'm, I'm totally fucked up, stretched out, whacked out. And here I am thanking the mother for all the shit that's happening to me. And uh, I'm laughing. And all of a sudden, I notice the fireflies. I think they're fireflies. I'm not sure. These globes of light. You know, I could feel the forest leaning in on me. I could feel the forest leaning in on me. And I see these great globes of light just slow, quietly, just floating, you know, through the air. And they're all around. And they're bugs, obviously. I, you know, maybe. They're bugs. And they're just floating there. I'm just absolutely fascinated. And then I, I finally finished <laughs> what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm walking back. And it was a very bright moon. And I looked down at the ground. And I, I expect I'll see the shadows of the plants and stuff on the ground from the moon, but I don't. Uh, what I see instead 
is you see the those patterns on the back of that Shapobo shirt there? Yeah, the Shapobo shirt, yeah. Yeah. The entire ground is it's it's laid out like like a like like they just laid a blanket on top of everything. There are these instead of seeing shadows of leaves, I am seeing these designs over the entire ground. Now each one's supposed to be a door into another world. And I remember going back Look, I just got to get back to the Maloka. I don't want to go to another universe. <laughs> Tiptoeing through, going through. It was just, uh, it was just amazing. And that was the night when, allegedly, the he called down the uh, UFO over the Maloka. But there was this buzzing sound, and it was just. He did something. All I can say is, Jose, it's like he pulled back the veil from the universe and just showed us what was there and you could hear everybody just going wow I I think there was this great golden serpent gliding by I'm not sure it was just so mind fucking blowing I don't even know if I can contain it in my brain but it was beautiful experience man wow beautiful wow although it beat the shit out of me it was uh, quite a beautiful experience. But, you know, I, a guy like me needs to be humbled every once in a while. And Ayahuasca, she's, uh, she humbles you when yeah. you need to be. Yeah. Wow. And I like that. I just wish she would taste better. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Because there have been times when it's so thick. And before I'm halfway back to my seat, I'm ready to heave it all back up and struggling to get it down oh it's good to pay for your fun a little bit (laughs) uh thanks for that chair that was the best pitch ever heard so i guess i'll just end with the uh the last question i always like to ask uh in whatever aspect it kind of uh you want to ramble a lot i I get lost great um (laughs) this is excellent um, but I always like to ask um, if you were put in charge of how these plant medicines and psychedelics are going out into the world, you know, how would you, how would you regulate it? What kind of rituals would you like to see? Or how would you like to see it in your old job? Like, what would you do if the world was ideal if you could do the things? Well, first thing I would do is I hire Bob Jesse <laughs> to organize that for me. Okay. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> and one of the Sufi saints. Uh, I think the man in. in this, I, I, I call them Sufi saints. We have a, a panoply of people in that movement. They're all mostly on the West Coast who have just been working so hard at these things and so consistently and with so much uh, integrity and stuff. You know, and he's one of them. He's one of them. You know, Shulgans are up there too. Uh, it needs... There's a... I used to talk with my friend John maybe about this all the time. He's the one who described New York as the greatest mass hallucination ever perpetrated by Western civilization. <laughs> he fled here. We talked about that. He said, do you really want it to be legalized? Do you really want it to be controlled by somebody else? Um, I'm saying, well, as long as that somebody else is us, maybe that won't be so bad. But it ought to be made available to people who want to try it, but there needs to be um, screening to weed out those people who should not do these things at all. The people who are in the, like in a pre-psychotic state, 
it just hasn't been triggered because this experience like any traumatic experience could trigger things and there are some people that that should not take it um some way where people can be 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 interviewed and found out if they're suitable and then have a situation set up where they can do it safely uh with another person there i for one do like to do my mushroom tripping pretty much by myself uh because i don't want to do what anybody else's bullshit that's why we do any ayahuasca sessions. We're always saying, don't get involved in what's going on next door to you. That's their deal. None of your business. Don't get involved. Um, some safe place where, where, where people people can 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 do it with uh, with friends or, or do it with with someone else, but where they can do it in a safe space and 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 talk about it. And you got to throw some ritual in there too, uh, just to give it some shape and some form. Um, uh, people warm up to that, I think, a lot more. They feel safer with it being part of a uh, a formal thing. Um, it's tough to because you want to control so it doesn't get out of hand and go nuts and be abused, and yet you want it to be free enough so people can do it without any limitations put on them. Uh, I don't necessarily think everybody would want to sit down in a special location with a, someone who's trained. They just may want to go out and do it by themselves. You know, it's their kind of choice. I don't know. It, it, it's kind of difficult. It's I really couldn't answer it in one thing. This is something that would have to be tr- thrashed out among people over time. Um, that's why I would defer to someone like Bob Jesse, who probably has thought all this through and worked it out and whatever he comes up with is what I would go with pretty much um, well great thanks so much for taking the time to talk today it was really a pleasure we didn't get into the mushroom experience up in Wadley de Jimenez that was another good story we'll do that some other time okay I look forward to it awesome thanks so much <laughs>